One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Today is the day, ladies and gentlemen, the day we start the beginning of a new era, the day we begin to dream of what might have been, the day that the light at the end of the tunnel gets a little bit brighter. Yes, that's right. Boris Johnson will this very afternoon set out his roadmap to the end of this infernal lockdown. It looks like schools are all definitely opening on March the 8th. So that's great news for all parents. All we have to do now is keep up the pressure on the Prime Minister to open up gyms, shops, restaurants, bars, pubs sooner than the current plan. After all, we've come this far. We may as well go the rest of the way, mightn't we? I mean, what is the point, for example, of keeping hairdressers shut? What is the point of closing down gyms and not opening them again uh, while everybody gets fatter and less fit when everybody's supposed to be fighting off uh, a killer virus? 0344 499 1000. We're joined first this morning by the Chief Political Commentator at The Independent, Mr John Rental, And I'll be asking him, just who is running this country anyway? Is it Boris? Is it Carrie Simmons? Or is it Dylan the dog? An amazing amount of absolute and utter wasted space has been taken up over the course of the weekend about a four-legged creature uh, which apparently has become a pawn uh, in the Downing Street agency battle. 0344 Coming up later on, we're joined by Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens with his latest take on where we all are and his assertion that this government has pushed us as far as we can go. And if they start lightening uh, the heavy-handed uh, lockdown, perhaps he'll be a little bit more enthusiastic about it. We'll also be talking to Royal Author Angela Levin after yet another weekend of revelations about William, Harry, Meghan and, of course, Prince Philip, who's still in hospital uh, six days on. The Oprah interview is in the can. Surely now is the time for the Duke of Netflix to officially retire himself and remove himself from any claim to the throne. I know it's very unlikely he would ever be king, but nevertheless, I think he should put his hand up and go, you know what, I don't want to be king, I don't want to be prince, I don't want to be duke, I just want to be ordinary Harry Windsor. That's what I want to be called from now on. Uh, and, we'll do- and by the way, I thought they did this $100 million deal with Netflix. What on earth are they doing giving an interview to Oprah Winfrey at CBS? I know a thing or two about the media, and if I was Netflix, I wouldn't be too happy about it, by the way. Also in this hour, we are heading north of the border to catch up with Scottish Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie on the fast that is the Holyrood inquiry into the Alex Salmond affair. Could this week be the week, as Scotland on Sunday predicted, that starts the endgame for Nicola Sturgeon? And I'll tell you all about the wokest headmaster of all time. He is Lee Hill from Yorkshire, who has cancelled Admiral Nelson, Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh because of 
course, they've got those nasty links to slavery, only to replace them with house names including Greta Thunberg, Malala Yousafzal and Marcus Rashford. I mean, do give me a small break. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it could be no better time than a gloomy Monday morning to take ourselves over to the Independent and find ourselves in the company of Mr John Rental. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, uh, a very, very hefty weekend uh, of, of stories to get our heads around. And none could be more important than the, than the, the incredible influence of Dylan the dog, surely. <laughs> I, uh, I do not know i mean the obsession of my colleagues with uh, dogs and cats in downing street is uh, is a wonder to behold um i mean as if we haven't got enough to write about i mean there are you know obviously serious disagreements in number 10 about serious questions of policy such as how do you deal with scotland uh, northern ireland and uh, the european union yeah uh, yeah, we're reduced to um, we're reduced to um, the the uh, unerasable uh, mental picture of uh, of Dylan the dog trying to hump um, Dominic Cummings's leg. <laughs> I mean, the thing I found most ridiculous was probably Friday's page three of the Daily Mail, an entire page written by Simon Walters, formerly of a parish that I used to work for, a man very highly regarded in the world of politics, considered you know um, important high up in the executive ladder at the Daily Mail, who wrote something like about 850 words about Dylan peeing in some woman's handbag. <laughs> I know. It's, it, is, it is absurd. It's, it's the next stage on from writing about, uh, uh, about the Prime Minister's fiancée, <laughs> uh, how, uh, how influential she is, which just brings back um, awful memories of all those uh, acres and acres of newsprint devoted to uh, Cherie, mm. uh, Booth or Cherie Blair, as she, as she as she sometimes called herself, um, which was just as just as irrelevant. I mean, in the end, the prime minister makes a decision. Obviously, um, you know, Cherie and uh, Carrie Simons are, you know, political people and they have strong views of their own. But I mean, in the end, it's the prime minister who makes the decision. Yeah. It, I mean, there is this kind of strange obsession, isn't there, with with the other half and how it all works behind closed doors. I think it's particularly British. I don't know if it happens in any other part of the world, really. But there is this kind of sense that, that there's this kind of net curtain twitching, you know. Yeah. I mean, the first lady in America is just as uh, is just as uh, um, elaborate, I suppose. Uh, but what what really bothers me is the sexism of it. I mean, yeah. you know, Philip Philip May is obviously also an extremely motivated uh, political person um, who uh, discussed politics with with Theresa, uh, and yet there wasn't the same um, slightly hysterical, over the top uh, coverage devoted to him. I mean, is it really the case that in 2021 in the United Kingdom, people actually think it's all right for Philip May to tell his wife what to do? But it's not all right for Carrie to tell Boris. Uh, well, it, I think I, I think know. there's a bit of that, you know. Well, there is, and you know, it it is surprising. I think that uh, that that serious media outlets have given um, space to uh, something called the Bow Group, mm. which used to be a serious um, One Nation Tory pressure group. Uh, it's now run by someone who could kindly be described as a maverick. Um, who's demanding a public inquiry into uh, Carrie Simons' influence on on government. Right. I mean, 
it is it is depressing to see the BBC and the Sunday Times give uh, give house room for such nonsense. Yes, I also similarly I felt the same watching Andrew Marr's show last night. I don't bother getting up in time to watch it. I watch it sort of on repeat later on on the iPlayer, um, where he's sort of spent most of the. Um, first half of the interview with Matt Hancock badgering him about that ridiculous lawsuit that Jolien Moron brought, uh, in which it was revealed that somehow um, Matt Hancock acted unlawfully without managing to break any actual laws. Well, no, he did break. He, he broke the law. No, That's nobody can tell me which I law thought... he broke. You can't. I bet you can't tell me either. Well, I, I, I can't. No, because, I because there isn't one. He broke a law, which he broke a regulation which they set for themselves uh, because of of a two-week time lag. That's not the same as breaking the law, is it? Yeah, you have to publish those things within 30 days. And and on average, he was 17 days late. When you say you have to, Um, it's not actually a law, though, is it? It is the law, yes. No, No, it's not. Rubbish. <laughs> but but all these is... Ramonas are going. Why hasn't he been? Why hasn't he resigned? I mean, you think he'd committed some kind of horrendous war crime? Alistair Campbell put out a tweet yesterday saying, "Why has Matt Hancock not been uh, uh, investigated yet by uh, the police or something or some such ridiculous thing?" Would, to, which, to, which, think... to which to which I said, "Yeah, they're waiting for you in the Hague, uh, Alistair, for war crimes. You know, just get on with it." You would think Alistair would know the difference between uh, b- between serious crimes and you would uh, think so breaking uh, regulations. But mm. uh, uh, no, you're right. There's a, there's a lack of perspective. I mean, the point is, go- governments are taken to court all the time. Quite often, the courts find against them. Yeah, uh, the government has to do something to put it right, and then you know the, the world moves on. Yes, uh, this wasn't a cr- this wasn't a criminal uh, uh, issue at all. No, uh, exactly. and, and it, it isn't a very important. Uh, question to be honest i mean i i found i found matt hancock's defense uh, completely credible which was at, at the height of the pandemic yeah. when things were frantic and his civil servants were totally focused on trying yeah. to obtain as much as they possibly could they overlooked getting some of the paperwork done yeah. on time i mean it really was as as trivial as that exactly and i mean i'm all for badgering uh, ministers i'm all for giving matt hancock a hard time and i'm all for uh, questioning him about some of the things that he's got wrong but, I mean, you know, for Andrew Marr to waste that much time on something which is clearly, you know, a one-question, one-answer scenario is ludicrous. And, you know, I'd frankly rather my, my uh, broadcasting bill, my TV licence money, was spent on holding Matt Hancock more to account and asking him proper questions about this lockdown and when it's going to be lifted. Yeah. Well, he was, asked, he was asked those proper questions as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had, a, he had a good story to tell, but perhaps... Um, you know, we we in the media just do like to focus on 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 bad news mm. and people breaking or and negativity and all the rest of it. But yes. uh, I mean, today today ought to be a good day for the government because you know, as you say, they are they are finally announcing uh, the ste- the steps to to lifting the lockdown. Yeah, and I think you know, as I said to Julia just a moment ago, uh, three weeks ago, we would have been very very happy to hear the news that we're about to hear. You know, she's none, she's unhappy because it's not going fast enough. But I, for one, uh, am grateful that it's actually going at all. Well, she said, she said it was never going to happen. And, and you're, yeah, <laughs> well, not entirely. Guest, that's not entirely correct. It, it, I know what you mean. Well, it, it is entirely correct. But your next guest, Peter Hitchens, also uh, thinks that we now live in a police state and we're never, never going well, to get out be, of Well, as you would expect me to be uh, firm and fair, I should be putting that to him. Uh, and, and what are you going to say now, Peter, that we're not living in a police state? Well, quite. I think that's a that's a, a very a very important uh, question, and uh, I look I look forward to I look forward to listening to his answers. 
Yes. Well, we've got another head-to-head coming up with uh, Toby Young versus Christopher Snowden. I'm not quite sure which one of them um, uh, is going to be the first to disagree with the other, because technically speaking, they should both be on the same side. But it's been quite amusing watching those two and Peter Hitchens all arguing with each other over the weekend um, about the various different natures of libertarianism. Christopher Snowden is one of those people, like uh, Dan Hodges, who changes his mind when the facts change, whereas Peter Hitchens just regurgitates the same old uh, same old slogan. Listen, I'm not going to I'm not going to let you attack Peter Hitchens uh, un- unassailably. It's unfair because he's not here to answer for, answer back, and I'm not his no, spokesman. You're going to give him plenty of airtime later, Mike. So yeah, well, you know, we do. Can... You know, we do oh. because he, he doesn't get it. I mean, the reason we started doing that was because he didn't get it anywhere else. Now that he's become uh, you know sort of reborn uh, as somebody who can actually speak without um, stopping. He is now actually being invited onto other shows again. So that's good. So I feel as if we've we've done him a massive favour. Yeah, he speaks without stopping and without being challenged by you, Mike. That's not you true. And- that is absolutely and- untrue. Once again, and that's a calumny issued by you. No, I listened to you last week. You and he just agreed on everything. Well, there's nothing uh, wrong which- with agreeing with people, John. I mean, sometimes you agree with me. I do, I do, but I do not agree with you that the that, that lockdowns don't work. And that the government was. I've never was said that they don't wrong. work. I've never said that. What I've said is, is that they cause collateral damage, which sometimes right. is worse than what they actually are pretending to stop. And I think that's an entirely defensible position. Yes, but you've never been prepared to accept the corollary of that, which is that you are in effect arguing that uh, for, for a higher level of deaths uh, over the past uh, over the past no. year, uh, in order to in in order to well, save no, the because- economy. No, but oh, you say that every time fine. every time it comes up. No, but, but John, you say that every time it comes up and it's an impossibility uh, to square. You cannot square that circle because all you I mean, it's like me. It's like you saying, well, if you don't go out, um, you might not get run over by a car. You'll save your life by not being run over because you haven't gone out the door. You know, it's an impossibility. I can't not prove like that. that. I can't prove that you're wrong because it's something that hasn't ever happened. You've, but Mike, you've just accepted that lockdowns work. You are arguing for for a less severe lockdown. Therefore, no, no, I'm not. More, no, no, no. What I'm, what I'm arguing for, John, uh, is is a recognition by the government, and I think they're beginning to recognise it themselves. Actually, so you'll be proved wrong here that there is a massive amount of collateral damage caused by stopping people from being able to earn a living, by stopping people from being able to send their children to school, and by stopping people uh, from going anywhere. Nobody disagrees with that, Mike. I mean, that's the whole point. Well, Neil um, O'Brien disagrees with it because he slags anybody off who says it. No, he doesn't. Uh, he accepts that there are costs of, of, of the That's lockdown. That's good of him. Everybody, everybody most of, most of the cost to Neil O'Brien are the cost of his expenses, for heaven's sake. I mean, you know, the point, the point is, is that there has been a chasm opened up between those who think lockdown is brilliant and those who don't. And the people no. who think it's brilliant will say that anybody who doesn't like it is somehow a granny killer, which is rubbish. Well, I'm not, in, I'm not interested in the absolutists on, on, on either side. The Neither question is, is the lockdown proportionate? Uh, to, uh, to to the uh, is the damage caused by the lockdown disproportionate rather yes. to the uh, lives saved, and I'm afraid you know I would uh, you know I'd love I'd love to be able to 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 have argue. I mean I was with Dan Hodges and Christopher Snowden uh, last year. I thought another lockdown wouldn't be wouldn't be necessary, but the facts changed and the virus changed. Uh, and you have to accept that that, that those lockdowns right. weren't... OK, well, what do you think now that the virus appears to be on the wane? What do you think now? I think they, the lockdown should be lifted as soon as possible. Right, so how soon? Let's have some proper policy for Monsieur Rentoul. <laughs> well, 
I, I'm looking forward to, to seeing what evidence the government is going to publish today. I think I think March the 8th is is a bit late for opening the, opening the schools. Mm. But, you know, as long as they're opening all the schools on March the 8th, giving people plenty of time to plan for that, I think that's good. I think they should be opening opening up the rest of society as quickly as possible after that. Yes, but they're talking about not doing anything like that until possibly much later in April. Um, and I yeah, think but- I agree with you once again, John, uh, proving myself to be as reasonable a man as you are, uh, that I think <laughs> they should surely be opening um, gyms. They should be opening um, all sorts of other facilities for people to go to by mid-March, shouldn't they? Uh, well, certainly by the by the end of... Well, I, I, I don't know. We need, to, we need to see the evidence. I mean, the, the, the point is the target is to, is to have vaccinated all... Um, all the over 50s and the at-risk people by mm. 15th April. Now, of course, these target I think these targets are being set deliberately, uh, generously to allow yes. the government to be able to, uh, which is which is good for morale. And uh, I can understand why why the government's doing that. And 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 I can understand that you you want to manage expectations in that way. So you want to be able to do things earlier if the if the data continues to to justify that. Uh, so I think yes, I think by the end of April. Um, those groups that account for 99% of deaths uh, will all be protected. Well, they, they won't all be protected because it's not total protection, obviously, and not everybody has the vaccine. But I think the overwhelming majority of those deaths uh, will be prevented. Will be prevented by the end of end of April, yes. and I don't see. Why you can't open society up completely at, the, at that point? No, I mean, there's a story just breaking now, uh, which says that the uh, single vaccine jab linked to 85% and 94% drop in risk of coronavirus admissions in Scotland. So, yeah. I mean, if it's that good, then surely... Yeah. I, see, I'm of the opinion, unlike Julia, that actually, as we go forward, Boris will become more kind of, um, uh, shall we say, persuaded to lift lockdown quicker than he is probably going to set out today. Well, if we keep on seeing news like this, yes, I mean, the, the, every, every bit of news, every study of these of these vaccines uh, does suggest that they are highly effective, not just in in, in preventing deaths, but in preventing hospitalizations, preventing transmission, mm. which is which, which is very important. And that means, um, you know, we will be getting the, the levels of infection in this country down very fast, I think, once uh, once that really starts to to kick in. And then, you know, I think people's attitudes will change because. The other thing that you and I always disagree about is, is is public opinion. Public opinion is very, very fearful of this disease still. And, you know, we've got an opinion poll in The Independent today uh, by uh, Savannah Comrades okay. suggesting that half the population want to see social distancing and masks uh, carry on for the whole of this year. Now, I think that is that, that is absurd and censorious and uh, not not backed up by the evidence. Mm. And I hope we but I suspect <laughs> I suspect that, that as ever, John, the, the, the communities that, in which we live will will take their own view on all of that stuff. You know, I mean, I probably will continue to be slightly wary of people standing right behind me in a supermarket for the rest of time. You know, in the same way that I'll be wary of people coming right up to me uh, and breathing in my face in a pub. You know, so I'll probably avoid that kind of thing. However, um, well, if somebody said to me, you're going to have to wear a mask every time you go into a supermarket until the end of the year, I, that wouldn't bother me too much, to be honest. Oh, right. Well, but I don't think it's necessary. So, uh, okay. you know, I... I I think attitudes. I think public attitudes will change once we start to see these numbers really shift. And once, you know, once we get to the position that at the end of April, which uh, you know, in effect, coronavirus will be a non-fatal uh, disease. I think. Um, yeah. I think. I think. Then, then people's attitudes will change. And I think once once the threat of hospitalisation and death is is lifted or largely lifted, and it, it will be overwhelmingly uh, lifted, then yeah. I think people. 
little change. And I actually think the weather will play quite a big part. I mean, it was lovely this uh, this weekend. And when I was out and about, I was down on the south coast at the beach and stuff like that. There's many more people out uh, doing their thing. You know, January is always a bad month to judge anybody's behaviour because most people are kind of hunkering down and hiding from the bad weather. But once it starts to get nice, people are going to go, I'm going out. You know, and not I, only am I going out, but I'd quite like to go and sit outside a pub and have a pint of beer or a ploughman's lunch yeah. or something, you know, and there, there will be pressure brought on the government by people's behaviour. Yeah, and I do think I do think scientists have to do more to try and get the message across that, uh, you know, outdoors, outdoors is pretty safe. Mm. I mean, the transmission, we know quite a lot about the transmission of, of, of coronavirus now. It, all, it happens in indoors in enclosed spaces in sustained contact with other people. Yeah. Now, out, outdoors is outdoors is, is, is pretty safe. Uh, and we ought to be encouraging people to to go out outdoors and not taking long long lens photos of, uh, of of crowded beaches because you know it doesn't I mean you know it doesn't matter how crowded beaches yeah, it's right. pretty safe outdoors exactly right let me end with a, a final question to you because I don't think we've spoken since Sir Keir Starmer's keynote speech about nothing whatsoever at all that was of any use to man <laughs> or beast um, he's in a bit of trouble isn't he no he's not at all are Mike. you sure. I mean, I thought- I thought it was a dreadful speech, and you know, I'll probably, I probably I got my, I got myself into a lot of trouble with uh, with with Labour supporters for slagging it off. Uh, I mean, I thought the 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 the, the centrepiece economic policy proposed in it, British recovery bond, is just just a, a, a stupid idea. I can't, I can't see what the point of that no. is, and and nor can any of my economics-minded uh, expert colleagues. Um, and I thought it was a, I thought it was a very very thin speech, hugely over oversold in advance, right. but. All that, all that said, I think Keir Starmer is doing a a pretty good job. The past, you know, the Labour Party is now a serious alternative. He's doing a pretty good job of burying the Labour Party for the rest of the time. No, no, he's not. He's uh, he's a serious, <laughs> a serious alternative prime minister, um, and you know he will get he will give Boris Johnson a run for his money at the really? next election. All right. Well, I may, it, I may I may make a wager with you on that, but uh, but that's for another time. What I really enjoyed yesterday uh, watching the old uh, Andrew Marshall was David Lammy saying that, uh, well, of course, the reason that Keir Starmer didn't mention Brexit is because it's happened in the past. It's happened now and it's all over. <laughs> so there's no point talking about it. Then goes into a long rant about Nye Bevan and the foundation of the NHS, which actually happened <laughs> quite a lot longer ago. <laughs> no, but the NHS is still with us, Mike, whereas... Uh, whereas well, so is Brexit. Is... I mean, you're going to tell me Brexit's not an issue now yeah. for the Labour Party? Yeah, but the Labour Party doesn't want to doesn't want to talk about it, whereas <laughs> no. it doesn't want to talk about the NHS. <laughs> I know, but I just love this sort of barefaced <laughs> juxtaposition uh, of complete <laughs> and utter nerve, uh, n- the nerve of David Lammy, who actually is a great orator. Uh, it's just a shame he that is. what he says is complete and utter nonsense because he speaks very well. <laughs> he d- he does, and uh, but he he probably will be discouraged <laughs> from speaking about Brexit. Um, yes, and, and uh, the Labour Party. Uh, will they'll be trying to avoid that subject like the plague? For, I know, absolutely for, right. I think they will have to come back to it, um, you know, towards the back end of this parliament. Yes, I think you're right, John. Great to speak to you again once again. Thank you very much indeed, John Rensel, Chief Political Commentator at the Independent. Uh, like me, thinks that uh, it's time to lift this damn lockdown. Uh, like me, he's optimistic that it will be lifted quicker uh, rather than, uh, than than later. Because in the end, I think the evidence is all going to be on the side of those like me who think that it's actually now okay to go out and meet people. It's okay to go and have a a meal with someone. It's okay to go to the gym. It's okay to go back to school. For heaven's sake, let's get on with it. (laughs) 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. A couple of people seem to have misunderstood uh, the conversation I just had with John Rental. People saying, what do you mean masks till the end of the year, says Suzanne, and worrying about someone standing behind you. Wow. Well, Suzanne, I'm sorry. I've always been one of those people that rather enjoys my personal space. Now, if I, as it has happened to me on several occasions, I'm standing waiting for a train and somebody comes and stands right behind me, literally breathing on my neck, I don't think that's necessary. I think it's rude. I think it's stupid. And I think it's really, really uh, sort of uh, invasive, I would say. Now, as far as wearing masks is concerned, if it means that we can open a pub and it means we can open a restaurant and you can go into that pub and you can go into that restaurant wearing a mask, take it off when you sit down, I'd be more than happy for that to happen right now. I couldn't care less whether I have to wear one or not. Right. It makes no difference to me. I do not wear a mask in public. I do not particularly wear one willingly. But if that is what it takes to get the world back to normal so that we can all start doing the things that we enjoy doing, then I'm all for it. It's as simple as that. Let's talk to Willie Rennie, leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, because Willie, uh, unlike most Liberal Democrats, is a decent man uh, and a very, very wise one as well. Willie, a very good morning to you. <laughs> good morning. Now, such a I know, listen, I mean, I talk about being damned with faint praise. Can you please, I mean, the one question everybody wants answered down here is what on earth is going on with the SNP? Can they organise an inquiry, cancel an inquiry, you know, tell everybody that Alex Salmon's appearing, then he doesn't appear, tell everybody Nicola Sturgeon's going to appear, then she doesn't appear. What's going on? Yeah, it is a bit of a, it is a, bit of a shambles. But the next fortnight's going to be the big, the big events are going to happen. Alex Salmon's appearing this week. Yeah. Alex Sturgeon next week. So we'll find out more what's going to happen with the future the SNP, but they are badly divided just now. Yeah. And being really sad though, Mike, with all of this, is at the heart of it were some women who stepped up and wanted their grievances and their concerns to be addressed mm. and they've been badly let down by so many people. Are you suggesting that the court case that was held last year uh, in which Alex Salmon was more or less exonerated um, was in some way a bad thing for them? What, what I'm saying is that the process within the Scottish government let them down. Um, there is concerns just now that their concerns are not the heart of the discussion and they should be at the heart of the discussion because we need to make sure that in the future, women who are treated like this come forward and speak up because they cannot be allowed to be treated like this. Yes, no, I accept all of that. However, surely if a man is exonerated in a court of law, um, then it would be wrong to suggest that he'd done anything wrong, wouldn't it? Yeah, but he's he's admitted that what he did wasn't um, probably the best behaviour. What he was disputing as to whether it was illegal. Right. And that's what case decided. Well, I mean, I think... I suppose you could argue about this all, all day. Um, certainly women should feel uh, that, that they can come forward and make a complaint about somebody. But there are also plenty of men uh, of whom complaints have been made who haven't done the thing. And they then are run through the mill as well, which is almost as bad. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I think we've got to make sure that the court processes are allowed to continue in an unencumbered way. I think that's right. Um, so, yes, absolutely. I don't, I don't dispute that, yeah. Mike. We just need to make sure that um, in the middle of all these political discussions, the women's concerns are fully considered. That's true. But I think you would also, uh, would you not contend, Willie, that an awful lot of these allegations and the way that they have been dealt with has been an entirely political process and has had really nothing to do with the welfare or otherwise of those people that complain? Yeah, I mean, what we're looking at now is the process inside government that actually cost taxpayers half a million pounds mm. 
which didn't actually conclude properly on whether uh, Alex Salmond, in, ter- in terms of the internal process, uh, conducted himself fairly and reasonably. Um, so that's what we are considering just now. And then also the decisions of the First Minister as to whether she told the truth to Parliament and whether she was right not to tell the Permanent Secretary of the Civil Service that she had met uh, Alex Salmond. And these are very serious matters that need to be fully addressed because it's about the integrity of the process and of the First Minister. Right. Now, I'm under the impression, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Alex Salmond has now issued two new statements to the inquiry. Um, what do you know about what he's saying in those statements and, and when do you expect to find out if you don't know? Uh, I believe that he's um, issuing his new revised statement today. Obviously, I haven't read it. I'm not a member of the committee. So I don't know the details of that, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, And as far as what she knew and when she knew it, I mean, her husband um, uh, has already been accused by the committee of lying and of committing a criminal offence by doing so. What's happened about that? Uh, Nothing yet. um, But it's pretty clear that he was inconsistent between his two appearances. Um, And he was, he's actually confessed himself that um, he was wrong to say what he had said previously Mm. at the committee. You know, you have Nicola Sturgeon saying that the meeting with Alex Salmond was about party business, but the chief executive, her husband, wasn't at the meeting and apparently didn't know anything about it. And he said the meetings were actually about um, government business and that's why he wasn't involved. So Mm. they were inconsistent with each other as well. And that needs to be properly investigated by the authorities. Right. And so, I mean, as far as the timetable of events is concerned, Alex Salmond, we expect to see what, tomorrow maybe or the day after? Wednesday. Wednesday. And then Nicola Sturgeon herself will appear when? The following week. Okay. Um, And what happens in between? Uh, Well, there'll be, I'm sure, debate about what Alex Salmond says. um, And there'll be further questions probably for the First Minister. Because I know Alex Salmond, with the mood that he's in just now, I'm sure has got a lot to say. And some of that might be quite difficult for Mm. the First Minister to handle. And is any of this having an effect on Nicola Sturgeon's popularity? Because I'm seeing reports that, uh, that, the, that those in favour of her are dwindling, uh, maybe by not a huge amount, but by certainly some small amount. Uh, but there may also be people who are less inclined to want independence because of this. Yeah, it's difficult to discern. I mean, there's no doubt that the support for the SNP is still pretty high, but it is going down. Mm. And support for independence is going down. But that's also because people don't think pursuing independence in the middle of a global pandemic is the right thing to do. Mm. So I think that's probably the reasons why Nicola Sturgeon's popularity is in decline. Uh, Again, it's still pretty high, uh, I admit, um, but it's uh, moving down. And I think that would be a cause for concern for the independence movement, but also Nicola herself. Yeah, sure. And as far as her own kind of ambitions are concerned, we know how she likes to get out in front of Boris Johnson. Are you expecting her to make some grand announcement today before Boris does about what the lockdown lifting is going to mean in Scotland? No, uh, we're getting it tomorrow. Um, We had a briefing last night with the party leaders about the kind of broad outlines about what's going to be uh, in the statement tomorrow, but not a great deal of detail. Um, I think there'll be the sequencing of how things will be eased, but no timetable. I think we'll have a regular review period. We'll have a tiered system like we had um, previously. We might have some of those tiers at bigger geographical areas. But other than that, um, I'm not expecting big announcements. The two big things that are happening this week is the first one is about schools, primary one to three, nursery, but also the upper end of 
um, secondary school. They're going back this week. They've already started. Um, and But we're also, and this is really important, we're getting care home visiting restarted after months of separation. Families are going to be together again on the 3rd of March. It's expected to start. And that's something I've been a strong advocate for because that's one of the harms that actually I don't think has been fully recognised mm. when we consider all the harms of COVID. The separation of families from their loved ones in care homes is one that I don't think has been fully recognised. Well, this is one of the things that I bang on about all the time. You know, the collateral damage caused by these lockdowns has very rarely been addressed by most mainstream sort of leaders of parties, other than backbenchers uh, in, in, in London, in the Tory party, really. Um, and I, th- I think that's quite shameful. I mean, it's worse than that because there are some uh, who have made out that those of us who care about what's going on around COVID are somehow careless and don't care about people dying, which is not true. What we care about uh, is people being able to see their loved ones being able to send their children to school, being able to get back to work and all of those things that we need as a, as a community uh, to be able to do. Yeah, and, and I think there's a genuine debate to be had about um, all the different harms and we have got to consider all the harms because sometimes when you're doing a daily press conference that announces the deaths in hospital, the number of people in hospital, the incident rate, the R number, mm. all of those factors, when you think of that, you think that's all that really matters and it's not because we do need to consider, as you say, the impact of lost education, yeah. the impact of separation in care homes, the impact of lost income from people who are stuck at home with no earnings. Right. All of that needs to be considered as well. Now, I happen to think it's important still to take a cautious approach with the pandemic, but all of those other things I'm determined to get the right balance with. And sometimes I don't think we have got the right balance. No, I think that's absolutely right. Because we, now we're told this morning uh, that we are expecting Boris Johnson this afternoon to do away with more or less the R rate. I've always been suspicious of the R rate anyway, because to me, it's a sort of artificial construct made up by these modelling sage scientists who say, well, you know, if you open the schools up, the R rate goes up regardless of what actually happens with the disease. Uh, same if you go uh, sending kids back to university. Oh, the R rate goes up. If more people go out, the R rate goes up. And it isn't really a proper representation of anything other than a statistic and a statistical kind of pyramid that they build. And so I think it's quite right he's doing away with that. He's also supposedly going to do away with the phrase uh, stay home, save lives. Well, great. You know, so what does that mean? Does that mean that the stay home, save lives campaign uh, worked or that it wasn't actually worth saying? Yeah, I don't know what he's going to say this afternoon. Um, I actually happen to think the R number is not an unreasonable thing to consider. It's not the only thing, though, because... Yeah, but it's all... not real, Willie, is it? It's a, it's a made-up number, which is an estimate. Yeah, no, no, it is. And and I think the test positivity rate has got equal you know, concerns about it because it doesn't tell you the whole picture. It partly tells you how many people have been tested, but I'm not sure it tells you the whole picture. So we need to consider all of those factors, including the rollout of the vaccination, which has been a wee bit slower in Scotland than the rest of the United Kingdom. So all of those things need to be fully considered in the round. Um, And, you know, we need to take it cautiously, carefully, but we do need to consider all the harms in society and make sure that if there's an opportunity to ease things, 
and do it safely, we should seize that opportunity. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Willie, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Willie Rennie, leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, uh, talking about what could be a very big fortnight uh, for Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. Alex Salmond could torpedo the entire party somewhere below the waterline and it could all sink without trace. Now, obviously, that's not going to have much of an effect uh, on the election coming up in May because more or less uh, it's a complete and utter shoo-in that the SNP will have a massive majority in the Scottish Parliament because let's not forget the other parties in Scotland have not really been able to make much of a dent in the SNP's uh, sort of uh, overlording it to everybody else. And so no doubt Nicola Sturgeon will still lead uh, the, the, the party into Parliament in the next session. However, I would question whether she's going to be around for an awfully long time. We shall see. 0344 499 1000. We'll take your calls coming up. How about this from AB? Mike standing up for Matt Hancock for just forgetting a million pound contract piece of paperwork. Please. He makes decisions that affect our country. That's his job. Losing faith in you, uh, says AB. Still applaud Julia. She is still with us. Not sure about you. I'm sorry, AB. I mean, if you had a brain in your head, you would understand that Matt Hancock breaking the law that nobody can name isn't actually the same as breaking the law. He hasn't broken any law. What he's done uh, is he has played a little bit fast and loose with some regulations that the Tory party put on themselves uh, to release information about contracts that were given out. There has been no decision made on the contracts being given out wrongly. Uh, In fact, quite the reverse. They have said the contracts were all awarded uh, in the right way. The only problem here is that the contract was not, uh, shall we say, disclosed soon enough. It was missed by something like two weeks. That is not a hanging offence. And I'm not defending Matt Hancock. I've said many times Matt Hancock should be held to account for a great many things that he has screwed up. He should be held to account for being smug. He should be held to account for not taking any care about the people who are being injured and damaged by this lockdown. He should take a great deal of responsibility for that. And I will continue to press him on it. But what I won't do is join the ranks of Jolian Moron, Layla Moran and Caroline Lucas from the Green Party, who have launched a ridiculously time-wasting, taxpayer-funded, organised lawsuit, which proves the square root of absolutely nothing. So thanks, AB, for saying you're not sure about me. Well, I'm not sure about you, mate. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Let us say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us once more. I don't know whether you were listening to the first hour of the show, but I had John Rental on, um, who still seems to have a bee in his bonnet uh, about you and about your uh, assertion that we're living in a police state. Uh, so I, I, I've been asked by him to put it to you. What do you say now uh, that apparently the lockdown is coming to an end? Well, I'll say what I have to say when I discover what actually happens. If <laughs> I wouldn't say exactly that we live in a police state. I'd say we live in a country where we have sacrificed quite a lot of our freedoms, and I think a lot of them are not coming back. Mm. Uh, I think, for instance, imagine, here's something which must concern quite a few people, uh, what will be happening if weddings begin again? Uh, I suspect, for instance, that, that, that if guests are allowed in any numbers, they'll almost certainly have to be registered. Uh, there'll be checking of their phones and apps to make sure that every detail of their present. Uh, everything that used to be something which one just did it's going to become something which one has to register, record, and, uh, and and will be in some ways the property and at the permission of the state. Instead of assuming that we can do what we like, uh, we've now been changed into people who have to ask permission for everything we do. Yes. Remember, we're, all, uh, we're all now reduced to the state of, 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 of doggy begging, where we're saying, oh, please, please, Mr. Johnson, will you let us go out? Yes. Someone in the park. Can I actually go and see my relatives without wearing a spacesuit? Will I be able to go abroad? Please, please let me. Well, this is no attitude for free man. No, or free woman. no, you quite. Have, and it's actually it's characterised, Peter, isn't it, by the questions that it's... establish a reason for doing it. And let's say, let's see what actually happens here. I think there's still quite a strong faction among the government's advisors of the zero COVID mob who actually think that restrictions probably have to last forever. I don't think that faction has by any means gone away. No. In any area where we're subjected to tests, if you remember when Gordon Brown announced that we're going to be however many tests it was before we joined the Euro, yeah. it became clear later on that meant we weren't going to join the Euro because the crucial thing about tests is who decides when they've been passed. Mm. Well, yes. Who will decide when these tests have been passed? So I'm, I'll, no, I'll welcome any liberations which come my way, uh, but I'm, I'm I'm not actually completely convinced yet that we're we're going to be we're going to be as free as we used to be, or even particularly free by the standards of today after the announcements this afternoon. Let's yes. see. Yes, I mean my sense is this: that the people of this country, by and large, uh, are like me and you i.e. we don't like to be told what to do and we will emerge from this uh, with that same view. There are some, there's no doubt, and, and many of them are in the media, uh, who when they appear at these media briefings ask ridiculous questions like, when can I go and hug my mother? Well, you know, if you want to go and hug your mother, I would suggest you go and hug your mother uh, at the risk of being, you know, swatted down by Ofcom for saying such a thing. You know, so reckless am I. Uh, I'm recommending that people go and hug their own uh, relatives. You know, Gosh, but, but I, I think it's ridiculous. 
That is reckless, Mike. You, 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 again, <laughs> here we are in a country where we have to be careful what we say yeah. uh, on air, or indeed in other places as well. Mm. I mean, a country which is which has spawned recently a whole mushroom crop of informers all over the suburbs, uh, dobbing in their neighbours for for having too much exercise or whatever yeah. it is. I, unthinkable, you would have said, mm. if someone uh, described current Britain to you 10 years ago. It's ridiculous. Mm. Uh, you've been reading so many novels, but no, here it is. Yeah. You know, no, true. Uh, uh, but, you but, have to be careful what you say on air, and, and, and you have to be careful that, you, that your neighbours don't, uh, don't inform you. Yeah, quite. I mean, cer- cer- certainly, quite- but, but I think as, as many more people begin to realise what they've missed, because I think the problem with not having something is that you don't, after a while, you don't miss it. But if once you start to get a bit of a taste of it again, I think the thirst for it and the hunger for it comes back. And so my 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 hope and my faith in in humanity is that people will go. Actually, I quite like this walking around uh, in the street. I quite like meeting somebody for a, for a drink or a cup of coffee. I quite like uh, actually being a member of the human race again. I'm not sure. I think that an awful lot of people have grown used to this. I think that a surprising number of people quite like it. Uh, that yep. they are. That they readily they readily swap uh, actual liberty for notional safety, and I think that that's been established. The, the, there's been enormous support for this and enormous compliance with it. And I think that anybody who was thinking that maybe this was a country which would just resist uh, the sort of Chinese style surveillance, which may well be coming our way, can now relax in the knowledge that if it comes, if it's sold properly by sufficient amounts of fear sophisticated propaganda people will buy it and i that's been for me the most dispiriting yeah. experience and we are now when this began I, this is all metaphorical in case anybody takes it literally uh, we were like someone who's been falsely accused of a crime railroaded into prison who initially loudly protested his innocence uh, but then realized there's no point in that because no one's listening and is now bargaining uh, for a parody of the freedom that he used to have, you can let me out if I'm tagged. Yeah, please, please, I'll, I'll, I'll wear a tag. I'll wear, a, I'll wear a conical yellow hat on my head. If only you'll let me go. Yes, uh, is the position we're now. And it's a supplicants, are begging for scraps of the freedom which we used to take as our birthright. That's the transformation. We've had a revolution in this country, uh, and, and it's it's a revolution of power in which the state is immensely more powerful than it was before. And conformism is immensely more powerful. And dissent is not merely feeble, but also actively disapproved of and, mm. uh, and, and disliked. And I get it all the time. If ever I, if ever I leak out into areas where I'm, as I, was, I appeared on Channel 4 News last week, a discussion about freedom of speech. And there on Channel 4 News, of course, you meet an audience rather different from yours. Yes. I was pelted with slime. How dare I defend the, the, the idea that we used to be a more free country than we are now? It was only free for, for, for fat, white, heterosexual males or something like <laughs> rubbish. And, it not, and not free for normal people. All right. kinds of rubbish. I was even told that women couldn't, couldn't uh, go up to the bars and pubs until 1983 in the, in, in the grim, uh, bigoted, uh, hateful, sexist, racist past in which I had dwelt all unknowing for yes. so many years of my, what I thought was a free life. That there is an actual resentment of uh, of dissent now, and that's a very bad situation for a country which hopes to be well governed. Because without dissent and opposition, mm. a bad government follows as the night and day. Well, it's worse, isn't it, than that? Because not only uh, is there resentment, but you're also accused of not only being wrong, but of actually being dangerous. And I noticed that you said that they'd also cut quite a large chunk out of your interview as well. Well, yes, there was a bit because I was I was explaining what had actually happened to me and, and how the University of Portsmouth students uh, had first invited me and then disinvited me mm. 
uh, and various aspects of that. And also, the, I was offered the last word by the presenter, which is nice when you have it. Yeah. Uh, but when it actually was transmitted, the last word was given to the other guy. Right. Uh, and I know very well from, from dealing with left-wing broadcasting organizations that the thing you have to, to, to be really quick to get is the last word. This yeah. is recorded. So, I, I, so when Matt Fry offered it to me, I thought, great. That's unusual. And when it turned out not to have made the cut, I was quite interested. Yes. It's extraordinary, isn't it, how disingenuous some of these organisations are when they completely and utterly demand clarity uh, and absolute transparency for everybody else. But yet uh, they don't behave like that. Well, no, I, it's, it's, it's terribly sad about the BBC, particularly as well. And Channel 4, one, I mean, I, it, I have a sort of joshing relationship with Channel 4. Mm. That we know that we're not exactly on the same wavelength. But it's, the, it's mostly the BBC and the things that they, they do and the way in which they've shut people like me almost completely down mm. in the past few months is, uh, is even to me, and I'm used to that, is even to me quite shocking. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's much easier, of course, not to have people on at all than it is to have them on a couple. Yeah. Well, John Rental again this morning, was banging on about how, you know, well, you talk to Peter Hitchens every week. You know, what do you mean that he's not allowed? I said, yeah, but one of the reasons that we talk to Peter every week is that very few other people do. And one of the reasons that we like to talk to you uh, is because we like to think we're providing an alternative to what most media organisations do, which is basically to, to put you on, chop you to bits, have you for five minutes um, and then dismiss it. And that's rather, you know, we don't do that. Yeah, we're coming up to the third anniversary of my last appearance on BBC Question Time, for instance, a programme on which I had appeared pretty much yeah. once, you know, more or less. So I can't be that bad since uh, 1996. Mm. And suddenly, in, uh, after March 2018, that that was goodbye. And no one ever has explained it to me or, or, or offered any reason for it. I've just gone. Mm. Uh, and, and various other things. I disappeared from, from the press review on the Andrew Marr show, things like that, which yeah. I used to do. I, it's, I've become not merely a, a, a dissident, but a dissident who simply doesn't get... Uh, there are still tiny uh, areas into which I can find my way, but it's, it's largely gone. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Let's talk a little bit about the kind of the movement out of this lockdown, because I was uh, upbraided by some listeners earlier because I said, look, you know, uh, of course, there are people who are now saying we'll have to practice social distancing for the rest of the year. Uh, we may have to wear masks for the rest of the year. My take on that is, look, if it gets us out and it's, this kind of feeds into what you were saying earlier, of the sort of the captive problem. Um, if, it, if, it, if it gets us out, if they can open up a pub and a restaurant and they ask me to wear a mask before I go and sit down at a table, I'd rather that than the pub didn't open at all. Do you have any sympathy with that? Oh, a lot of sympathy with it, uh, but I resent it. Mm. Uh, I, I don't. I, I think that we, we, we really shouldn't have to make these bargains. And I fear very much that they will last a lot longer than people think. I, again, I make the point, these supposed temporary safety restrictions on airline travel from September the 11th, 2001, still apply. Yeah. And, and I, I think they'll still apply when I'm dead. Uh, it will go on and on. And I just wonder how long this, for instance, this mask wearing, which remains scientifically extremely un, uh, weakly justified, mm. let's put it as, as, at its most polite, uh, may continue into the foreseeable future. A lot, a lot of people, I, I reckon, even if, the, even if the mask decree is finally repealed, a lot of people will continue wearing them this winter uh, to demonstrate their virtue. Yeah. And, and it will become as common as it used to be in various Asian countries. Yeah. And that, that's a change in our society. And therefore, those who don't wear them will be, will be under moral pressure to do so. And the, the, the sight for school children being made to wear them that makes me quite cross. I, yeah. can't, I really can't see the justification for this. But on and on it spreads because it is, it, I have 
long felt, but it's a it's a political rather than a medical gesture, a gesture of submission to an allegiance to the new uh, the, the new state in which the health of the people is the highest law, and mm. certainly runs well above human freedom. Well, it does. And interestingly, still at the weekend, they were rolling out these characters from Sage, giving us these dire warnings that, you know, at any moment this could come back and kill more people. Um, and I mean, you've said over the weekend in your various musings with Christopher Snowden, uh, who's next up for us with uh, with Toby Young on a head to head, um, that, you know, all of these kind of and I make these arguments for people all the time that these pr promises of what would have happened if we hadn't done something. It's almost impossible to square that circle, isn't it? Because you can't, with any degree of accuracy, say, well, this would have definitely happened if we hadn't done that. Well, you can actually argue more cogently against it by the much hated and hugely misrepresented example of Sweden, which I stress here, I'm not putting forward Sweden as, an, as a perfect example of everything that we should have done, because they made some serious messes, particularly with their own care homes. But it's quite clear that Sweden is a very similar society of ours, to ours, did not do the things mm. Uh, which we did on the grounds that it would prevent these hecatombs of deaths, uh, but has not suffered uh, in, in actual statistical terms in, in deaths per million uh, any worse than we have. Now, if the, if the predictions of Imperial College had been true and were as applicable to Sweden as they were to the United Kingdom, uh, then that would have happened. So I think we can say with some confidence uh, that it's very hard to argue that these restrictions have prevented uh, notional deaths. And then you, you look at the fascinating comparison which can be made between the two American states, Florida and California. Mm. And again, you'll find that, that they took completely different attitudes uh, towards uh, masks and, uh, and shutdowns and restrictions of all kinds. And yet the difference between the outcomes is surprisingly small. And it would be very hard to argue on that basis that these measures are effective. Mm. I still say, I mean, who's, who's to say they wouldn't have any effect at all? Uh, but I, it is it is ridiculous to claim that that it is in some way certain uh, that had we not adopted them that many more people would have died. I think it's irresponsible to say. And every time anybody, anybody says that, including Mr. Snowden, who gets very irritated when I ask him, my question is, and you know that how? Right. Yes, well, quite. There is no way of, 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 of in any way, you know, sort of making certain that it would have been true. I was talking to my sister last night. She's lived in America now for the best part of the last 30 years. And she listens to my show uh, pretty much every night when uh, she, she's finished work. And she says, you know, she can't believe what's happening in Britain. She says to me, none of this would be allowed in America. People just wouldn't put up with it. And I mean, basically where she lives in Connecticut uh, and in New York, you know, life is more or less normal. You know, is it now? I, I had thought that several American states had gone at least as far as we had, but uh, I'll take your word for it. It's, it's very difficult. Yes, well, to they've up. tried to, but I mean, my son, for example, lives in California. He says to me uh, that California, while it's been in lockdown, uh, is full of people like him who are rather so anti establishment. Um, and he says none of his friends wear masks. They do what they like, they go where they want, and there's no kind of overarching police presence to try and make them do stuff which is ev evidently un American. Uh, very interesting. I, 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 this is the kind of thing which one needs a lot more reporting on. I don't know. But I, I, what my point remains is, if you're going to have a discussion based upon reason and scientific knowledge, then that's what you have to stick to. And we all make mistakes. I made one yesterday in, in, in my in my in my argument. Mm. I went a little bit too far in a statement. And I, I had to pull back from it. We all make mistakes. But the thing is that we have to try very hard to stick to what we know. Mm. 
Uh, and as soon as we move away from that, I think that we need to be questioned. And that's one of the problems with the advocates of, 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 of shutdown, uh, is that they don't actually answer these questions and they don't like being uh, asked them. And that it remains unanswered. But the problem is everybody's, apart from me, pretty much has moved on from this now. Yeah. We're now, as I say, bargaining for a, for a parody of what used to be freedom. And, well, this is it. I mean, people are now saying, um, and I've seen them saying it, I think probably to you on, on, on social media as, as, I, as I've read it about myself, where they'll say, well, what are you going to talk about now that lockdown's being lifted? As if everything's gone back to normal. Well, as you quite rightly say, it hasn't yet. I mean, I would like it to, and it'd be great if it does. But until it does, we will still have plenty to talk about. Well, you've also got the budget on March the 3rd, yes. which will be the first attempt by the government to balance its book, something which it is completely incapable of doing. Uh, so we will begin to see the the immense looming frozen tsunami of, uh, of of inflation and debt, which hangs over our whole country at a time I have to say when my arguments for uh, for going for the Norway option of staying in the single market when we left the EU seem to me also to be looking uh, r- rather well justified given what's happening to the city of London and quite a lot of smaller businesses mm. trading with the EU. Uh, and I don't think our economy is in a, in, at all in a good state. We may well be free from some of the restrictions uh, that the government have imposed on us, but we may also be battling with the fact that an awful lot of people don't have jobs anymore and don't have businesses anymore. And that all kinds of horrible things are happening, both to taxation and the value of the currency. And I don't think that anyone is even yet thinking about that because we're still so, quite rightly, preoccupied with the, with, with the fact that we're all... Uh, under house arrest and Mm. unable to do things which we used to think were normal. Well, that's right. And who knows if and when the high street reopens, for example, whether or not people will actually be out and about going back there because they haven't been there for so long in terms of just, you know, meandering about in and out of shops. They might have got out of the habit of it. It was always one of the great arguments that when I was an industrial correspondent in the Thatcher era, I would... I was sympathetic to my union contacts, but also often thought what they were doing was foolish. Mm. Uh, and there was a particular example, which was before I started writing about it, which I, I would say to people who went on strike, I said, if you go on strike in a major industry, and in those days strikes went on for a long time, yeah. uh, you, will, you will alert people to the fact that you're not essential. And what happened to the post office, for instance, when postmen went on strike in the Heath era in the 1970s, was that people re- realised there were other ways of communicating. It led to a huge increase in the use of telephones mm. uh, and all kinds of other ways of, of getting of, of getting things across without putting a stamp on an envelope. And as a result, the postal service began a long decline uh, from which it has yet to come out. And I think this, the when people stop doing something for a long time, they often don't go back to it. Mm. And people have got used to buying their goods on the, on the internet. And quite frankly, if the government had provided uh, men in spacesuits to come and deliver our groceries to us if we promise to stay inside and never go out at all. I think a lot of people would have taken that and they now want to stick out. Who wants to go to the supermarket when someone's going to bring the stuff yeah. to you? No, quite. Same thing happened to the printers, didn't it? The NGA in the days when only certain men of a certain age of a certain sort of, you know, name and having been nominated by their father or somebody could actually type on one of those huge linotype machines and then suddenly they were no more. Gone, yeah. I'm afraid that well, that was a, in many ways a tragedy because it was a beautiful trade. It was. Uh, sorry to see it go, but they they would not negotiate the compromise, which would have which would have saved them. And here again, mm. uh, but but the damage done by the long absence of anything to its to its commercial prospects is great. And any anything which has been shut down for the past year cannot be sure that its customers are going to come back in, in, 
anything like the same numbers it used to used to come. Mm. I'm very worried about it. I, I feel terribly sorry. People mortgage their houses for these small businesses. Uh, they go into terrible debt. They take enormous risks. They work all the hours, God sends. And uh, there's been nothing they can do to save those businesses over the past year at all. They just they've just been strangled. And I I, I just I feel an actual grief about mm. them. And of course, all the other people who will lose jobs, which they thought were secure. Yes, I think it's you're coming. right. I think you're right to feel that way. Peter, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Man on Sunday columnist. Uh, as ever, uh, the voice of common sense, a man who has talked this way ever since the beginning, uh, unlike Dan Hodges, unlike Christopher Snowden, uh, who have both changed their minds on lockdown uh, and who now are firmly in support of them. We'll be doing a head-to-head uh, with Christopher Snowden and Toby Young coming up uh, later on this week. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk about universities, though, because we do that from time to time. Henry Jackson Society last week or the week before possibly came out with a remarkable report in which it suggested that the Chinese government uh, and many, many big Chinese companies had an awfully large influence uh, in some of the bigger uh, and bolder universities in this country, the Russell Group, to be precise. Today, The Times has got a story uh, about even more uh, remarkable stories about uh, what's going on inside of uh, our offices of learning. Uh, At least 49 British universities let students use banknotes, cash, to pay £52 million in fees over the past five years, including millions from China, India, Russia and Nigeria. So basically, what these uh, universities are now doing, these seats of learning, is going, you want to come and study here? Just bring us a big bag of cash uh, and no questions will be asked. Quite extraordinary. Let's talk to Dr Alan Mendoza, founder and executive director of the Henry Jackson Society. Alan, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse. I mean, um, this sounds borderline um, dodgy at the very least, doesn't it? Well, isn't it the Del Boy Trotter School (laughs) of University admissions now? You know, drive up a three-wheeled van full of uh, cash banknotes and in you get. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, you would think that these universities might have some standards, that they might actually have some moral duty or ethical sense of what they should be doing, rather than just literally being a grubby sort of, you know, raising of money operation so that they can pay themselves as much as possible. It's utterly bizarre. I mean, you try buying any higher value item in cash these days, You run through first you'll be reviewed secondly if you're not reviewed you have to run through numerous checks where the money is from right. you know how did you get it what are you putting through you can't just turn up and buy you know an expensive bag or a car you have to go through those processes for, so for universities to have a different view on this just strikes you as being utterly utterly uh, weird uh, you know you, you can't understand where they're coming from on this other than what you've just suggested yeah it might be the motivation well you're quite right i mean i was well i mean many moons ago probably two years or so ago i had a problem with one of my bank accounts and i had to actually physically go to the bank and there was a guy in front of me me, uh, or next to me rather because uh, it was in the days before we used to have to social distance right um, and he was putting he was trying to put in five thousand pounds in cash and they were giving him uh, the third degree because they were like well, where are you getting the money from and he was clearly a drug dealer of some description right and they and he said oh i sold a boat and they went really well you put five thousand in last week what did you do last week and then he came up with some other cock and bull story you know so in the end you know you're absolutely right if you try and just produce a bag of cash people assume it's probably been criminally obtained yeah, exactly. You know, obviously, there are reasons why people do uh, 
uh, use cash in society. Nobody's looking for a cashless, uh, you know, sort of society as a result of that. But at the same time, when it comes to high value objects, there's obviously a sense of suspicion as to why you wouldn't go for the ease of a bank transfer or for a credit card payment, as opposed to, you know, lugging vast numbers right. of banknotes around, which, of course, are a security risk. Well, as that's much right. Anything else. I mean, do we assume that the, the, the universities in question have shoveled all this cash into a safe or have they sort of put it into a large hold all and wandered down to the local NatWest with it? Well, that's for them to argue and discuss. But I do know there were cash officers at many universities, and one presumes there was some degree of uh, security there. And one also assumes that the, you know the universities did declare the uh, amounts, which is why we're now finding out about it. Mm. Well, the other worry, of course, is that it's laundered money. You know, not necessarily drug money, but certainly laundered cash, which has come by uh, these people who are giving it to the universities uh, by some illicit means. Well, yes. And in fact, if you look at some of the people who were closed down by this method, uh, people like Bashar al-Assad's uh, niece, you begin to see the web of, you know, kind of money deposits being made to accounts mm. and why interventions were necessary. And of course, money laundering is a big issue for the UK uh, economy. We're very concerned about uh, money coming in that's been illicitly uh, gained. Uh, we, we've obviously had crackdowns on the buying of property, for example, and other such uh, developments. So it's clear that there needs to be further crackdowns to stop uh, loopholes like this being exploited. Well, that's right. I mean, and when you see some of the kind of connections, as, as you were talking about there with Bashar al-Assad's daughter, picture of her in the uh, in the Times this morning, uh, also uh, a couple of people from Russia, oligarchs, children. I mean, had, I think the LSE, did they not have an entire wing sponsored by one of uh, Muammar Gaddafi's sons? Yes, that was a, an infamous example yeah. of uh, of taking money from wherever it was. That I mean, they just have no shame, do they, these people? Well, here's what's so surprising. I mean, uh, we all know there's a funding crunch uh, with higher education, but the solution surely is not to open your doors to anyone who happens to have a few, you know, sort of extra pounds to pay for them, mm. but to look very carefully at where you're getting your money. It's your right. reputation at stake as much as anything else. And I mean, is there an overarching kind of regulator involved in any of this? There doesn't appear to be. Well, it's, it's interesting. The money laundering regulations, you know, don't quite follow in this sector the way that you would expect in other more regulated industries. So what we've seen uh, today is a whole host of universities scuttling around to say, no, no, we were we made very clear to look at sources and issues like that. But there's been no sort of independent verification of how that process worked. And again, clearly, uh, now this issue is to the fore. We know that, you know, some of this money may be suspicious. Mm. There has to be a, a commitment, at the very least, to, to regulate it going forward. Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? Because, I mean, the Russell Group operates kind of loosely as a group, doesn't it? It doesn't actually have any particular kind of... Um, Sort of similarity with every university. I mean, each university can operate more or less as it wishes. Um, but what does the Russell Group kind of signify to you? Well, this signifies, you know, the leading institutions of the land in academia. Mm. Um, and if you're having some of those, you know, breached, then you start to wonder about standards. Who's being admitted? Are they there on merit? Uh, is it just because they can pay that mm. they've, you know, kind of walked through the door? And once again, it's very important that universities, you know, understand that their reputations are at stake through measures like this. And we've seen a number of them being bitten by the source of money they accepted in the past. Yeah, because, I mean, there is a sort of bit of a history of this, isn't there? George Bush Jr., supposedly, uh, George W. Bush, was supposedly invented uh, or allowed into Yale because uh, his father made a rather large... Um, a donation to the, to the August institution and I think they built another wing onto the side of it in New Haven so that he could go there. Well, US institutions have uh, always had a very different view of this sort of approach to 
to British ones. I mean, I think, you know, what, what we should be focusing on is what's happening here and the integrity of the higher education sector, of course, is something that, uh, that you know, needs to be beyond question. Mm. We have to have confidence in our institutions. We have to have confidence um, in the source of money that are coming in. We have to confidence that people who are coming in are there on merit and not because somebody's been able to pay their mm. way. If that's the, if that's how education is going, what's the value of, of degrees anymore? Well, particularly if the money has been obtained uh, in some way which might otherwise be deemed illegal, uh, if not unethical. Well, exactly. And that's why the checking process has to be done by the recipient of the money. And they need to make sure that the money coming in has uh, undergone thorough checks that the person who is uh, giving the money is happy to have essentially an audit of where the money comes from Mm. in order for it to happen. I guarantee if you did put that, by the way, in, these cash payments will cease very quickly. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Dr Alan Mendoza, founder and executive director of the Henry Jackson Society, with more troubling news uh, from the education sector, where, of course, uh, young minds are consistently being uh, groomed, challenged, changed, and more or less told how they should behave what they should believe, who they should believe, and who they should not at all listen to. Um, And it sounds to me uh, like these places are rotten to the core. The sooner we sort out these universities in this country, the better, in my view. I suggested, sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek the other week, that they should just shut them all down. I'm beginning to think it's a good idea. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us talk now, though, to Jodie Garth, content writer for Beyond at Twinkle, former teacher as well. I'll tell you why, because we do a lot of things here uh, in terms of homeschooling and talking about interesting things. Today, uh, we're going to talk about the number zero, right? Did you ever wonder where it came from? Jodie, a very good afternoon to you. Hi, yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Uh, Zero, Um, it's one of those things that you can't quantify because it doesn't exist, right? There's nothing to it. There isn't any zero, but yet there is. Yeah, it's kind of a weird concept. It's a, probably one of the most important numbers, if not the most important digit, mm. because it tells you the difference between £10 and £1 and yeah. uh, kind of helps you uh, in computer programming. You know, we wouldn't be able to use binary if it wasn't for the number zero. Mm. Um, so without kind of zero, the whole world falls apart. Right. But it's a relatively new concept. OK, so tell us where it came from. So it came from lots of different places all around the same time. But the one that we've got the most evidence for is the Maya population. Mm. So they lived in about Mexico. Uh, 2000 years ago is the time we're particularly talking about. And they used place value. So that's what we use is depending on what column the number is in. Right. Helps decide whether the how big the number is. Mm. So four in the hundreds column is bigger than the four in a ones column. Right. They used a similar system, but going up and down. So the higher the dot the bigger it counted and they used dots for one two three and four four dots meant four animals when they got to five they started using a line and they did that till they got to 20 because they didn't really wear shoes we think okay. so they counted to 20 on their fingers and toes huh. and then they had to start again and they would start a new column but then they couldn't tell between a dot that represented one and a dot that represented 20 right so they came up with a way to show an empty space and they used a shell shape so kind of like if you imagine r zero now on the side with yeah. some lines there's lots of reasons that we think they use that um that it could represent rebirth and you know the concept of nothing and things like that mm. but we've got examples of that from 36 bc which is really cool and it's on the mayan calendar that everybody's heard of um so they were kind of the one we've got concrete evidence to show that they were using it right but they didn't use it as a number they just used it as a placeholder something to show 
there was nothing. Or as a symbol. But also they were very good at building, weren't they, the Mayans? Because they built all those pyramids and things. So yeah, presumably they, they were using numbers there. Yeah, and we've, I mean, it's difficult to find evidence of numbers in that kind of thing because they used clay tablets or something similar and it was considered just rubbish when you were done, so you just chucked it away. So we haven't got loads of evidence on that. Um, the Mayan calendars are the big thing for numbers in Maya that we've got, um, which is really helpful. And we do think that other civilizations were coming up with similar ideas around the same time, completely separately. So the Babylonians who are in what's called Mesopotamia, so kind of Iraq and Iran, uh, the ancient Indian societies, all those and the ancient Egyptians as well. There's mm. some evidence that they were using zero, but you okay. have the same issue that numbers weren't preserved in the same way as some other stuff. Yes, because it's now occurred to me that zero is nothing, but it's also everything. Because if you were looking yeah. at the number one million, you, where would you yeah. be if you didn't have a zero? Exactly. But zero was only used as a placeholder. So to show the difference between one million and one, kind of uh, much, much later. So talking kind of 1,000, 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, and that came with the ancient Indian mathematicians. They're sometimes called the Hindu uh, mathematicians because the religion and the location were kind of as and one at the time. Um, so they used a shell shape or egg shape. Um, to represent zero. Now, their number system is really different to the Mayans and the Egyptians and the Romans that we had before because they use different symbols to represent different numbers rather than repeating themselves. Mm. So the Maya used four dots to represent four, whereas the Hindu mathematicians represented four with a specific symbol, okay. more similar to letters. Interesting. And so, I mean, as far as our own kind of mathematical alphabet if you like for want of a better word when did that begin in this country so that became um over to europe in about 1200 ad um so it came from a mathematician called fibonacci who's well known for his fibonacci sequence um his maths teacher was actually an indian mathematician mm. so he taught him the new symbols and he realized fibonacci realized it was much much easier to do calculations with that than with Roman numerals, which is what most people use. And so he wrote a book called Liber Archie, which is called the Book of the Abacus. And it Liber doesn't Archie. at all. Liber Abachi. <laughs> Sounds like Liber Archie, sorry. Yeah, it does. Lowering the it tone. Um, but yeah, so he wrote that book and he talked about how amazing these symbols were and how much more useful they were than the Roman numerals. And that's how they came to Europe. And more and more people picked it up and found it really helpful. Right. So, I mean, it's it's a kind of, um, it's an interesting thing as well, because there are many words for it. Zero, nothing, mm. naught. I mean, why do they have so many different descriptions of it? I guess it's all about different representations, because mm. nothing is quite good for a representation of what the number is. You know, if you have zero cows, you have nothing. Um, zero comes from the Hindu word for it, um, which was, I think, Zeric, but I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. right. I've only ever it written down um so kind of it comes from there nothing and nor it's also linked with the letter zero the letter o sorry as well so it's sometimes called 2.04 right well you don't mean the letter o you mean the number zero right um but they look the same so well it's now become this new you know like sort of computer language hasn't it like if you talk about yeah. if something has been restarted it's you know yeah. um 2.0 so you put yeah. the O there, even though you don't really need to, but it kind of has a, uh, I suppose, a dramatic effect. 
Yeah, and I think that comes a lot from being used in binary because in the world of computers, it's a whole new numerical system of just ones and zeros. Right. Um, and I think that's kind of why 2.0 and they obviously have 2.1 and so on. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a really useful number that doesn't really get much appreciation. Right. And is there a number? I always find try and find a, a question for which there possibly is no answer when I do this stuff. Is there a number that has the most zeros in it that you can think of that has a name? Because I know we we talk about Google, don't we? Uh, I yeah. Think, which is some ridiculously number, big number. Yeah. The biggest number I know of is a Googleplex, which is, Google, I think, a Google to the power of a Google. Right. So Google um, squared. Um, yeah, uh, sort of, yeah. Um, so uh, I've uh, no idea how many And how zeros many zeros do you think it has? <laughs> I remember someone telling me at school that if you wrote one zero on every atom in the universe, you'd run out of atoms. Right, okay. But I don't know if that's true. Right, well, I mean, the mind boggles. But listen, Jodie, thank you very much indeed. Jodie Garth, content writer for Beyond at Twinkle, former teacher. Um, zero, there we are. It's all about nothing. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.